Nanana, are you the elephant that ate my beautiful children? This is a story about the happiest louse in the whole kingdom. She looked right at me, and she broke into a smile. She said, such a smart butcher boy. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today. And today's episode is filled with strong and witty women, animals both as big as an elephant and small as a flea, and all kinds of other stuff, too. We're going to hear a story from Tim Lowry called Una Nana and the Elephant. We're going to hear a story by Octavia Sexton about how Jack got to America. And you'll hear a story, a cautionary tale of sorts, about impatience and greed called The Louse and the Flea by Richard Martin. You'll even hear a little Sid Lieberman story called Saved by a Sail that you won't want to miss. And in the meantime, to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Alyssa Mingorance. Alyssa, it's great to have you with me. Hi, Sam. I love being here. You know, I always love a good Tim Lowry story, Mm -hmm. and Tim tells all kinds of tales. This one is from a collection of tales about animals from all over the world. What are we going to hear here? Yeah, so this is Unanana versus the elephant. And in this story, Unanana has this beautiful baby who she loves, and everyone can tell that it's just a gorgeous little child. (laughs) Um, And she loves it so much, and she needs to go off to run some errands, and so she leaves it uh, in the care of someone else. But this someone else is not very attentive to the child. (sighs) And, yeah. That's the fear. (laughs) That's the fear of every parent, Of course. And, um... (laughs) Well, when something bad does eventually happen to the child, it's, you know, Mama Bear comes out and (laughs) makes everything all right. (laughs) And, uh, of course, the title of the story gives you just a tiny little clue as to uh, what's going to happen to this story, because in that setup, we haven't met yet the elephant, right? Yes. Una Nana and the Elephant, told for you by the great South Carolina storyteller Tim Lowry. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Unanana had two beautiful children, a beautiful boy and a beautiful girl. Whenever Unanana would go walking through the village, the people would say, Unanana, you have such beautiful children. Unanana would always stand proud and tall and say, Thank you. Unanana had beautiful children. She was a beautiful woman herself, and she was very smart. She could build her own house. She found a place where all the grass was mashed down flat. And Unanana thought to herself, this would make a good yard for my children, a good place for them to play. And so that is where she built her house. She used sticks to make a big circle and covered the sticks with mud to make walls. And then she put on a tin roof. Unanana did not build a door because it was very warm where she lived and she did not need a door. She just hung a cloth in the space where a door should go. And then Yunanana let her children play in the yard. The people of the village said, Yunanana, you must not let your children play here. You have built your house in the middle of the elephant's road. That is why all the grass is mashed down flat. This is where the elephant walks. But Yunanana said, I am not afraid. One day Yunanana had to go into the forest to dig yams so that she could cook them for their supper. And while she was gone, she left Big Cousin in charge of watching her beautiful boy and her beautiful girl. 
Now Big Cousin was very lazy, and she sat under a shade tree and fanned herself with a great banana leaf and did not do a very good job at watching at all. After a while, while the children were playing in the yard, a big cat came prowling down the road. When the cat saw the beautiful children, he stopped and he said, Whose children are those? They look good enough to eat. Eh, said Big Cousin. They are Unanana's children. She is away in the forest digging yams. I would not let them play here, said the cat, for this is the elephant's road, and the elephant might eat those children. Nah, said Big Cousin, and she went right on fanning herself with her great banana leaf, and the cat went prowling on down the road. After a while, an antelope came bouncing by on his black pointed hoofs. And when he saw the beautiful boy and the beautiful girl, he stopped. And he said, Whose children are those? They look good enough to carry away. Eh, they are Unanana's children, said Big Cousin. She is away in the forest, digging yams. You should not let them play here, said the antelope. This is the elephant's road, and he may carry those children away. Nah, said Big Cousin, and she went right on fanning herself with her great banana leaf, and the antelope went jumping on down the road. Soon, Big Cousin had fallen fast asleep. The banana leaf was laying right across her eyes. She was so sound asleep that she did not hear the great elephant come walking down his road. When the elephant saw the beautiful boy and the beautiful girl, he stopped, and he said, Whose children are those? But Big Cousin was sound asleep, and she did not say anything. The beautiful boy and the beautiful girl just stood there looking at the enormous elephant. He reached out his big, long trunk, wrapped it round the waist of the beautiful boy, lifted him high into the air, and goomp! swallowed him whole. Then he reached out his big long trunk and wrapped it round the waist of the beautiful girl, lifted her high into the air, and goom, swallowed her whole. And then he went walking on down his great elephant's road. When Unanana came back from the forest, she woke Big Cousin up and said, Where are my beautiful children? But Big Cousin did not know she had been sound asleep. The people of the village said, Oh, you nanana, the big elephant probably walked down the road and saw your beautiful boy and your beautiful girl. We told you not to let them play here. He probably ate them. Did he swallow them whole, said you nanana. We do not know, said the people of the village. We were afraid to look. I am not afraid, said you nanana. Unanana built a big fire in front of her house, and she took a pot filled it with water, and placed it on the fire. When the water was hot and bubbling, she then took some corn, and she husked the corn and ground the corn until she had meal. She poured the meal into the water and stirred it together until she had cooked a delicious pot of cornmeal mush. Then, after the pot had cooled, she placed the pot up on her head and began walking down the elephant's road. In a little while, she came to a great cat. The cat was laying in the shade by the side of the road, and Yunanana asked the cat, My name is Yunanana. 
Have you seen the elephant that ate my beautiful children? Ah, if you want to see an elephant, said the cat, you must walk down this road until you come to great white stones. And so Yunanana kept walking. In a little while, she came to an antelope. The antelope was standing by the road eating weeds, and Yunanana asked the antelope, My name is Yunanana. Have you seen the elephant that ate my beautiful children? Oh, said the antelope, If you want to see an elephant, you must walk down this road until you come to great mountains. And so Yunanana continued walking. Soon she came to a place where there were white stones all around and great purple mountains far in the distance. She knew that she must be very close to the elephant, and so she began looking round. And there she saw the elephant. He was sound asleep under a great tree by the side of the road. She walked right up to the elephant. She was so close that she could feel his breath blowing out of his trunk when he gave a great snore. <coughs> my name is Yunanana. Are you the elephant that ate my beautiful children? But the elephant slept on. And so she spoke louder. My name is Yunanana. Are you the elephant that ate my beautiful children? So then Yunanana spoke as loudly as she could. My name is Yunanana. Are you the elephant that ate my beautiful children? And when the elephant woke up, he reached out his big long trunk, he wrapped it round the waist of Yunanana, lifted her high into the air, and gloop, swallowed her whole. When Yunanana got inside the elephant's stomach, she did not waste any time. She started walking round and round inside the elephant, looking for her beautiful children, but it was very dark, and she had to feel her way. She bumped into something. Oh, that was not her children. It was a dog. And then she felt something else. Oh, that was not her children. It was a goat. And then she felt something very large. Oh, that was not her children. It was a horse. My, this elephant was very hungry. And then she finally discovered her children sitting in the darkest corner of the elephant's stomach, holding hands and looking very frightened. Do not be afraid, said Yunanana. I have brought you some cornmeal mush. Are you hungry? Yes, we are very hungry, said the children. We've been sitting inside this dark elephant with nothing to eat. So Yunanana took the pot down from her head, and she gave some cornmeal mush to the beautiful boy and the beautiful girl. And then they shared the extra cornmeal mush with the dog and the goat and the horse. Now, said Yunanana, our stomachs are full. We are all together. We should be very happy. Let us dance. Yunanana stood in the middle of the elephant's stomach and started to stomp her feet and clap her hands and sing a happy song. Soon the boy and the girl and the dog and the goat and the horse were all dancing around in the elephant's stomach. Oh, my stomach, yelled the elephant. Stop dancing around down there. Oh, no, said Yunanana. We cannot stop dancing. We are very happy. We have had cornmeal mush. Our stomachs are full. We are all together and we must have a dance. Oh, stop it. Stop it. You're killing me, said the elephant. Not yet, said Yunanana. First a dance, and then we'll come to that. Oh, get out, get out, get out any way you can, said the elephant. All right, said Yunanana, if that is what you wish. And she drew a great knife out of her belt. Using her knife, she cut a big hole in the side of the elephant's stomach and lifted up his big flabby fat. Out walked the dog. Out walked the goat. 
Out walked the horse. And out walked the beautiful boy and the beautiful girl and then Yunanana herself. The elephant had to lay on his side for a long time until he healed up, but he was happy now that all of those dancing people were out of his stomach. And Yunanana went home with all of those animals with her. Now she has a dog to guard her doorway. She has a goat that gives her milk, and she has a horse to carry her children to the market. Yunanana was very famous after that. People came from all around to see her house, and she still lives right there in the middle of the elephant's road. <laughs> a story by Tim Lowry, the great South Carolina storyteller, the story Yunanana and the Elephant. And, uh, you know, not every story about a uh, person, about not every story about people being eaten by animals w- turns out that well. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of nice. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm listening to the story, not only with you, but also with one of our assistant producers, Alyssa Mingorance. Alyssa, what do you love about that story? Well, I love about the story because it makes me think of two things. One, it makes me think of babysitting. And two, it makes me think of stubbornness, how she refused to move out of the elephant's way, right? Yeah. Uh, and it makes me think of this story when um, I have two older siblings and I have a younger sibling. And the two older ones were babysitting me and my younger brother. And we really wanted ice cream. And we are just pestering <laughs> the older siblings, oh, let us have ice cream, let us have ice cream. And um, my older sister in particular was like, no, you can't because it's not healthy for you, right? Like, right. it's not good for you. Um, and I was like, oh, I'll do anything, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> and she said, all right, well, here, if you have ice cream, then you have to, like, work it off somehow. So if you'll run up and down the stairs, like, 30 times, I'll give you ice cream. And my younger brother was immediately like, oh, that's not worth it. He was like, never mind. <laughs> uh, but I said, do you promise? And she said, yeah, I do. And so I did. I remember I ran up and down the stairs like 30 times and got the biggest bowl of ice cream afterwards. It was so worth it. <laughs> I wonder if your babysitter uh, remembers that as vividly as you do. Yeah, I, I know. I wonder how often do you have to make deals like that? That's right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, you never know what's going to bring on a memory and you never know what memory it's going to bring on. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. It's been a pleasure to listen here again, not only with you, but with Alyssa as well. Alyssa, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on this hour of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago you heard Tim Lowry, the South Carolina storyteller, with a story called Una Nana versus the Elephant. And coming up, you're going to hear stories from Octavia Sexton and Richard Martin and Sid Lieberman. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share around the kitchen table or the living room with the people that you love. Here's a memory of mine about the open road and a little hotel and even the post office makes an appearance in this entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed.
There's a time and a place for everything, even telling stories. And I'll explain what I mean by telling you about a trip to the Border Inn. The Border Inn is, well, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's called the Border Inn because it's on the lonely border between Utah and Nevada along Highway 50. You can buy t-shirts in the lobby of the hotel that say, Highway 50, America's Loneliest Road. The inn is the cultural center for a lot of what goes on in the area. Community gatherings and town celebrations pull from the tiny, tiny towns that dot the valley, and they meet at the Border Inn. It's part Moss Eisley spaceport, part trading post, part local diner. Suzanne and I stayed there for a couple of nights because we were developing a storytelling program in a couple of those local schools in those tiny, tiny towns. Anyway, on the way home, a couple hundred miles from the hotel, I remembered that I'd left a couple of shirts in the closet of our hotel room. No big loss. Cheap shirts. Easily replaceable. But I'd also left a ball cap that I'd bought at Wrigley Field the first time Suzanne and I had been to Chicago. An irreplaceable memory, if not an irreplaceable memento. So I called the border in to see if they could find the stuff, and they said they'd check the room and told me they'd call me back. Well, pins and needles for just a minute or two. And then they did call back, thanked me for staying there, and told me they could send me the stuff. C-O-D. I had to think for a second to remember what C-O-D even meant. Cash on delivery, right? That's how we used to order stuff when we were kids. We'd see, oh, I don't know, a plastic model car of the month club advertised during Saturday morning cartoons. Send no money now. Allow four to six weeks for delivery and we'll ship it COD. And we'd call or mail in a card or something and they'd get it in the mail and we'd mow lawns or something to get the money we needed for it when it got to the mailbox four to six weeks later. So COD from the border in with my ball cap. Got it. Watching the mail. Well, what came in the mail wasn't a package. It was a note. Go down to the post office and pay the postage and we'll give you your package. So down to the post office I go. And I wait in line for a minute, and when it's my turn at the counter, I show the note to the postal worker, and he looks at it, and he says, Oh, crap. Well, this surprised me. And then he looks at me and says, Is this for real, or is this a scam? And I don't really even know what to say. And he sees the look on my face and says, I mean, we never see CODs. I hope I even remember how to do it. And here I fumble a bit for words, because in the heat of the moment, I don't quite know what the words are for, no, this isn't a scam, I've been expecting this package. So I stand there with my mouth hanging open for about one second. The words that are gathering in my mouth as it hangs there open contain the whole story, the story I've told you, all the way back to Wrigley Field on our first visit to Chicago, the story of going to the Border Inn, which is way out in the middle of nowhere, to set up a storytelling program for some elementary school students, and the story of how I left some clothes in the closet and called later to see if they could find them for me, and how the nice person at the Border Inn said they could send them COD, and that's why, well, all those words, the whole story, it's just about formed in my head and just about to spill onto my tongue when I look at the face of the postal worker. He's, well, he's not in the mood. His eyes have narrowed a bit. He stares at me with my mouth hanging open. And, of course, behind me, there's a line of folks waiting to do business at the post office. 
There's a time and place for everything, I remember. And though I love to tell stories, you know that. I swallow all the words that have gathered on my tongue, and I say, uh, no scam, I've been expecting this package. And he shrugs and punches some buttons on his computer and hands me the package, and I insert my debit card to make the COD payment, and I'm on my way. And I'm wearing my old Chicago Cubs hat as I'm talking to you right now. Maybe someday I'll run into the post office guy at a restaurant or a ball game or a church meeting, and if he looks like he's in a good mood, maybe I'll tell him about how I got it and why I came to see him at the post office. It's a pretty good story, after all, and there's a time and a place for everything. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family right when you need it on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. A lot coming up. You're going to hear a story called How Jack Got to America. And we're talking about that famous storytelling character, Jack. You know, of Jack and the Beanstalk. That's coming up. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the films that we see, the books that we treasure, the meals that we share, the songs we remember, and of course, the tales that get told, passed down from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations, and talking about the way in which those stories get down into our hearts and minds and the shape that they take there is something that we love to do with friends here on the show, and I'm delighted to be joined by Donald Davis, the wonderful storyteller from his home in North Carolina. He joins me. Donald, it's such a pleasure to have we have you with us on the apple seat thank you sam always good to see you i've got a son these days who is in our family the car aficionado he knows the he knows the makes and models of every car that passes on the street he knows the sorts of cars that he wants to own in his life he's got it all planned out you know cars can be uh, cars can be important in a person's life can't they yeah they sure can be yes yeah. my my dad for example uh, my dad was born in 1901, and um, he was born in a world way, way, way back in the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina, yeah. and, and there were no cars. No one had ever seen a car that far <laughs> off the beaten path way, way back there, and he would tell me that when he was maybe, I don't know, four or five years old, his dad, dad came in one day. His father had, had made a trip to town, and he came in, and he said, uh, Dr. Graham has a car. He was the country doctor who would come to their house. And, and we might see it. We might, he might come here sometime. But if he comes, we got to watch out because it'll scare the horses to death. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, it sounds like a great big sewing machine. And if you hear it coming or you see it coming, uh, take the horses and tie them to a tree so they won't, they won't panic and run away. <laughs> so, so a car was, you know, this total, total, total new thing. In, in the world, in his world. And uh, by the time it was maybe he was maybe in his early 20s, he had actually saved up enough money to buy his first car. He said it was a 1920 used, of course, Hudson touring car. <laughs> and in 1929, he and two other men made a trip all the way across North Carolina to go uh, Canada goose hunting at the coast. And it took them two days to travel there and two days to get back. Mm. 
it was it was the greatest adventure of his of his lifetime. Um, when I was born, the first car I remember was my daddy's 1936 Plymouth. And um, one thing I remember visually when I was two years old was he came home one day and he backed the car in our driveway because he wanted to show us that it had been in an accident. And he told us that a drunk man had run into the corner and it squashed the quarter panel on the, uh, you know, over one of the back tires. Right. Yeah. And it squashed the quarter panel, which was where the gas fill, the gas fill was. And because it had mashed that, uh, my dad had taken an empty tin can and put it upside down over the gas fill so that rain wouldn't go in there and he could take that can off and put gas in it. So, uh, but, but, but see, it was, it was wartime and there were no, yeah. there were no cars. And so we had that car. And then in 1946, when I was two years old, my dad was so anxious, anxious, anxious to get a new car that he got a 1946 Plymouth. Hmm. And because it was coming just out of wartime, there was no chrome. Hmm. And the Plymouth had steel bumpers that were painted with aluminum paint. Oh, right. yeah. And so it looks like that. So two years later, we got another new car because now we could get one that looked like a real car again. And uh, during the wartime, my dad's brother, Uncle Harry, had bought a closed down Chrysler Plymouth dealer. So from then on, all our cars came from Uncle Harry and they're always Plymouths. <laughs> now, Uncle Harry would say to my dad, he would say, now, Joe, let me give you a Chrysler because you you know, I can give it to you for cost. I can get it for cost. And my dad, who was the vice president of the bank, said, no, no, no. I can't drive a Chrysler. Mr. Woody, who's the president of the bank, drives a Chrysler. I need to drive a Plymouth because I'm the vice president because it would give people the image that we're not using their money right. <laughs> so, so he had all these cars, but the one when I learned to drive was a 55 Plymouth. And that year, my uncle Harry had gotten the bid on all the county vehicles, which included police and sheriff's cars. And he got one more car than they took. And so we got what was a 1955 Hemi V8 police special for our family car. <laughs> it was unmarked. It was two-tone green. And my mother loved it because it was so powerful. She could ride the clutch and start off in second gear. And then it would go as fast in second gear as she ever went to go. So she never had to change <laughs> gear. <laughs> and of course, as a 16 year old, I had this, you know, bomb of a family car to drive that had a huge engine and and so, you know, I, I've just grown up with, with those car memories. And I remember, you know, saving up for my first car and, yeah. and what an important thing that was in the world. So there's so many memories tied yeah. to that. You know, as you're talking about cars, I'm thinking about there, there, there are people who hesitate to share the comprehensive story of their life, because where do you mm -hmm. begin and yeah. how do you organize yeah. it? Right. And, and I think about, I think about some of these things that we're likely to have throughout our lives, cars, for example. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think about uh, I, I, what a useful thing sometimes it is to, 
tell your life story in terms of the cars that you've owned or uh in the case of my my, my father is a musician and he he, okay. he i've often heard him tell his life story in terms of the musical instruments that have come through his of hands. course of course uh what a pleasure to have donald davis with us of course donald davis one of america's premier storytellers and of course an ambassador for storytelling all over the country he lives in north carolina but really makes his home everywhere wherever stories are being told and of course you can find donald's great work at ddavisstoryteller.com of course you can find his stories on the appleseed as well at byuradio.org appleseed donald davis what a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you for doing this. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat for a moment with the great North Carolina storyteller Donald Davis. We'll be sure to have him back. Lots more coming up on the Appleseed Octavia Sexton with How Jack Got to America coming up next. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to be with you on this hour of The Appleseed. A moment ago, a conversation with the great North Carolina storyteller Donald Davis. That was a pleasure. And up next, a story from Octavia Sexton. It's called How Jack Got to America. Now, Jack is one of the most common characters in all of folklore. And he didn't start out as an American character, but he came to America as people came to America. Here's kind of a storytelling version of how he might have got across the pond. Octavia Sexton on The Appleseed. I'm going to be telling you all some jack tales. Now, a little bit of history about these jack tales. The jack tales have been around since about the 13th century. They originated over on the British Isles, but when the Europeans came over here to this continent, they brought these stories with them. And a lot of these English people settled in the Appalachian Mountains. Once they settled there, they started passing these stories about this character named Jack. And passed them from generation to generation, and now we have a very unique set of jack tales known as the Appalachian jack tales. And the stories changed because life in the Appalachian Mountains was a lot different than it was over there in England. So the stories I'm going to tell you are these Appalachian jack tales that I grew up hearing, and I tell them in my dialects, uh, you know, like a window's a winder, a woman's a woman. And um, I think you'll be able to translate them pretty well. Now, I told you how the stories about Jack got here, a little bit of history there. But Jack... He actually came over here from England. And this here's a story about how Jack got to America. Well, now it was way back in a long time ago. And there was this here boy named Jack. And he was living there at home with his mama over there in England and his brothers, Will and Tom. And, well, their daddy had took off one day to find some work and just never did come back. They didn't know what happened to him. But, I mean, you know, times were getting real hard. And so their mama told him, said, look, boy, he said, y'all need to get out, you know, and find you a job. Well, Will, he was the oldest. And he said, well, all right, Mama. He said, I'll go out and see if I can't find some work, you know, to help out. So he started walking down the road looking for some work. We well, met up with this man coming along the road. And he stopped him. He said, buddy, he said, you know, I'm needing some work. And said, I'm wondering if, if you know of anything. And that man said, well, as a matter of fact, said, I own my own factory. And said, I'm working three shifts, you know, around the clock and can't keep people. Said, I'm needing three workers right now. So well, I put you to work. You know, you pick any shift you want. And Will said, well, that's good. So, but i got two brothers back at the house, you know, Tom and Jack, and they're needing jobs. That man said, hey, you go fetch them. And said, you all come on in, pick whatever shift you want, you come on in to work. 
So Will, you know, he went back to the house, and he told Jack, and he told Tom. And uh, Will, he said, well, I think I'm going to take that their first shift. And Tom, he was the second oldest. He said, well, I'll, I'll take that third second. And then that left Jack, you know, to work there on third. Well, Will, he started off to work, you know, walking along the road, going to that factory and getting pretty close there. And he met this woman, old woman she was, all bent over, you know, had a crooked back, you know, and just walking along, had her a stick in her hand, you know, just a trembling, had a big bundle of sticks on her back, just all burdened down with those sticks. She saw Willa coming. She said, hey, won't you help me hurt these sticks? Well, now, Will, he stopped just for a moment, and he said, woman, he said, I can't help you with those sticks. Now, if I stop helping you with those sticks, I'm going to be late for work. And if I'm late for work, well, my boss is going to fire me. If my boss fires me, I ain't going to make no money. And you know, if I don't make no money, well, I'll never get out of the house. And if I never get out of the house, well, you know, I won't never get me no wife. He said, I can't help you. And he went on down the road. Well, came time for Tom, second sheep. He's walking along the road, met up with that same old one, all bent over, you know, with her stick. There she was, trudging on a big old bundle of sticks on her back. She said, hey, would you help me hurt these sticks? Tom, he stopped just for a moment. He said, woman, I can't help you with those sticks. Now, if I stop helping you with those sticks, I'm going to be late for work. If I'm late for work, well, you know, my boss, he'll fire me. If my boss fires me, I ain't going to be making no money. If I don't make no money, well, I'll never get out of the house. And if I never get out of the house, well, I won't never get me no wife. He said, I ain't helping you. And he went on. Third sheep. There goes Jack along the road. Met up with the same old one, you know, trudging along there with her. She said, hey, help me with these sticks. Jack, he stopped. He said, woman, I can't help you with those sticks. If I stop helping with those sticks, I'm going to be late for work. If I'm late for work, well, you know my boss will fire me. If my boss fires me, well, I ain't going to make no money. If I don't make no money, I'll never get out of the house. And if I never get out of the house, I'll never get me no wife. He said, I can't help you. And she was real pitiful, you know. She said, please, they are mighty heavy. Well, Jack had a real good heart. He said, well, all right, Dad, blame it. He said, we got to make this fast. You know, I can't be late. And he edged over there, got that big bundle of sticks, you know, lifted them off her back, and right when they hit the ground, she grabbed Jack, throw Jack up over her back, and commenced to run. And, and there he was, you know, up on her back. And I'm telling you what, that woman hit 80 miles an hour. Whoo! Jack thought, Lottie, she can run. You know, just a bowling up around her feet, him on her back, you know, he go boobity, 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 you know, just a bouncing up and down. And he saw a big mountain in front of him. He thought, oh, law, how mercy, you know, she don't slow down. We're going to splatter into that mountain, you know, and die. Just be two greasy spots. And she didn't slow down at all. Just kept right on a run. And when all of a sudden that mountainside opened up, just a big old cave. And she ran right inside that mountain. And there she was, a running down toward the belly of the earth, a twisting this way and that way, a jumping over those sinkholes, going through those little fat man squeezes, you know. In the pitch black, went on for about nine miles before she stopped. Stopped there in front of a bar, had a pot there, had something violent in it. She threw Jack off her back in front of that pot, gave him a big old wooden spoon, said, now you stir that. Jack, he's completely lost. Well, he could never find his way out of there, you know, nine miles into that darkness, you know. Nothing he could do except stir that pot. You see, she was a witch. Yeah, she was.
was a witch. And what she done was done kidnapped Jack because she needed somebody to stir that pot. Because what she was a doing was going up onto the earth and she was gathering every berry, herb, and root to make one wise. And she had one yerb to cook that potion up in, and then she was going to drink it up, and she's going to be the wisest person in the world. But while she's up there gathering that stuff, see, she needs somebody to stir it to keep it from sticking, you know. And Nerd Jack was having to stir that pot day in and day out. And time passed, and it came to the last day of that year. Now, everything that old witch needed to make one wise was in that pot. She done gathered it all up. But just to make sure, she was up there on earth and she was just uh, grabbing like weeds and leaves and barks, you know, that wasn't worth a thing. And was taking longer. And Jack, he was stirring that pot and it was a-biling down lower and lower. He thought, well, she don't come on back. You know, it's going to bile dry. There ain't going to be nothing left. Well, about the time they were just a few drops of bouncing around on the bottom of it, here she came. And he looked up, and right when their eyes met, the last drop of that potion popped out of that pot, hit Jack on the hand and sunk in on it. Burn! He was like, ow! Ow! And he licked it off. And all that wisdom went into Jack. And she saw his eyes light up, you know, with that wisdom. She said, oh, Lord, have mercy. I work for a yard and now all that wisdom is in the jack. She thought there ain't nothing for me to do except to eat. She thought if she ate him up, she'd still get that wisdom. Well, Jack, being as wise as he was now, he knowed what she was thinking. And being as wise as he was, he knowed his way out of that third cave. He just jumped up and he commenced to run. He was a-twisting this way and that way, you know, through those turns, jumping over those sinkholes, through those fat thin squeezes. And he came out of that cave. I mean, he's a-running just as fast as he can. But remember, she can run 80 miles an hour. Sure, she came a-gaining on him, you know, that old nasty witch breath. You know, he could smell it. She'd a-fixing, you know, to grab him, eat him up. But him being as wise as he was, well, he could change shapes. So he turned himself into a rabbit. Hippity hoppity, hippity hoppity, you know, just jumping, you know, over those bars and logs and such, just escaping into the woods. Remember, she's a witch. Yeah. She can shape change too. So she changed herself into a beagle ham. You know, they good rabbit dogs. Right after Jack, she went, you know, jumping over those bars and logs and such. And he's a hippity hoppity hippity hop. And she's he's hippity hoppity And right when she was fixing to reach out and grab him by his little bunny tail, he changed himself into a little bitty bird. A sparrow. Went flying up above the tree. Looked down, you know, on that beagle, went, ooh. Jack looked down, went, ha, ha, went, went flying on off. That witch turned herself into a hawk. Swooped up above those trees. Went flying on up above Jack. Had them old hawk eyes looking down at him. That old hawk beat wide open. 
those old claws ready. And she began to dive down toward Jack, going to pinch his head off, you know, eat him up. He's like, pip, 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 pip. she's like, shoo. He's like, pip, 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 pip. she's like, shoo. And right when she was fixing to grab him, he turned himself into a kernel of corn. And he was right over a cornfield. And there he fell in amongst oodlings of other little kernels of corn. And Jack, he was laying there in that cornfield being the best kernel of corn he could be. And that hawk, she was circling around those old hawk eyes, looking down, saw about where he landed. Well, she swooped down. Now, hawks, they don't eat corn, but chickens do. And she turned herself into a chicken. And she was gobbling up that corn. And she swallowed down Jack. But before he went on down, he turned himself into a little bitty baby and stuck right there in her cross. And she turned herself back into that old witch. And she had a big old growth right there, you know, on the side of her neck. And little baby Jack right there. And she just like slobbering it out. You know, like gagging, trying to get him out. And she was running out of that cornfield. And there at the edge of the cornfield, they was some men had butchered on some hogs. And she went running by and she just grabbed one of those pig bladders and just coughed Jack up into one of those pig bladders. Well, there she was, you know, in England there at the seashore. And there she had Jack in that bladder, you know, like a big old balloon. And she thought, they ain't room enough in England for both of us. So she just tied that bladder off and she threw it into the ocean. And there little baby Jack went a-floating away on those waves. Well, now Jack, he was so wise, he not only survived, he growed inside that pig bladder. And the waves took him further and further and further away from the English seashore till one day, whoop, Jack, he washed up on dry ground. And by this time, well, by this time, Jack was a full-grown man. And he went to tearing his way out of that pig bladder and stepped out and looked around while being as wise as he was. Well, he knowed he was standing in the United States of America and being as wise as he was, he knew the best place in the United States of America to live was Kentucky. And that's where he headed and settled and became a pig farmer and did so good while well, he was able to send for his mama and Will and Tom and they all came over and all of them got into hogs and did real well. And that's how Jack got to America and that's the truth and that's the end of that story. Octavia Sexton with How Jack Got to America. And up next, a story from Richard Martin, a story with a lesson. It's a fable of sorts called The Louse and the Flea. You may learn something about impatience or greed, or you may learn something else. A story worth talking about The Louse and the Flea on the Appleseed. This is a story about a louse. You know, the tiny little animal that bites you and sucks your blood. Small, but very, very big effect. Now, this story is about a louse which was 
a happy louse. This is a story about the happiest louse in the whole kingdom because that louse lived in the very, very best place to be if you are a louse. He lived at the bottom of the king's bed. Just, just think what that meant if you are a louse. All that wonderful blood the king eating the best food, drinking the finest wine all day, and then getting to bed in the evening for the louse to suck that blood. He was a happy louse. Now, one day, the louse was lying back at the bottom of the king's bed thinking, oh, I've got a good life. When a visitor came along, another small, small animal, but not a crawling animal, but a jumping animal. It was a little flea, which came jumping, jumping, jumping into bed until the louse said, hey, what are you doing here? This is my bed. It belongs to me. Oh, no, 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 please let me in. Oh, I've had such a terrible life. I've got, I've, I've, I've got no strength left. I need a bit of good blood. Let me have a, a bite of the king. The king? The king belongs to me. You can't just come in here and take king's blood away from me. Oh, no, get out. Oh, please, said the flea. Oh, please, if you understood what a miserable life I've had. Do you know where I've been living all these years? With teachers. <laughs> Ooh, what blood, the, the, the blood tastes of ink. Oh, you awful, please let me have a good meal just once in my life. Well, the louse, I mean, even a louse has got a heart, you know. And the louse looked at that poor hungry flea and thought, well, Perhaps, perhaps I should, just for once. But then the louse thought, oh no. Listen, if you start biting the king, you won't know how to do it. You'll, you'll get us all in trouble. How to do it? How, 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 how should I do it? I just bite him, don't I? Oh no. If you do that, the king will say, ow, I have been bitten. And he will call the guards, and the guards will run in and strip the bed open, and we'll all be killed. Oh, no, 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 no. If you want to bite the king, you can only bite the king when he comes to bed. And he's very, very drunk, and he falls fast asleep. And only then can you bite. Well, all right, I'll do that. I'll do that. Just let me have a bite. Even that is not enough, said the louse. The king is the king, and there's only one place you can bite the king without the king saying, Ah, I have been bitten, calling the guards who will come in and strip the bed and kill us all. You can only bite the king on the bottom of his foot. It's the only place. All right, I'll do that, said the flea. Just let me get at the king. Well, all right, I agree, said the louse. The flea came into the bed and waited and waited and waited for the king. And the king, he came to bed, but for once in his life, he wasn't drunk. 
And for once in his life, he wasn't particularly tired. I, I believe, I have been told, that the king had just come back from his learning English course. <laughs> and he was so excited about this, he, he just found the language fascinating, and he thought, I'll go to bed with my Teach Yourself English book and <laughs> do a bit of extra homework. So there he was, in the bed, going through page after page in his English. You know how you do, don't you? Yes. Well, the poor flea. The poor flea, he was driven to distraction. He was so hungry. He kept on jumping up to the top of the bed, looking out to see if the king was asleep. And the king was not. The king would say, ooh, let me look at these comprehension questions here. <laughs> the flea would have to go down and wait and wait and come back up again and look over. And the king said, ooh, a chapter on the passive. Ooh, <laughs> that chapter must be read tonight. Uh, but the poor flea, he, he was going back down the bed when he went right by the king's fat backside. Oh, and you know that flea, after all he had been through, he just could not hold himself back any longer. You can imagine that great glistening king's bum, the flea launched himself at it. Ah, great big bite, and just as the louse had said, the king cried, Ah, the king's bum has been bitten. <laughs> In came the guards, they stripped the bed, they found the louse and the flea, and they killed them both. And that really is the end of the story. But... If you want a moral to your story, well, it's, I suppose, a story which shows the importance of self-control. Yes. And of course, it's also a story which shows that too much English grammar can often be fatal. The Louse and the Flea, a fable of sorts from Richard Martin. We're going to wrap up today with a story from the great Chicago-area storyteller Sid Lieberman. Sid is no longer with us, but his legacy of tales remains. And here's a great one called Saved by a Sale. It's a story about a payday and Sid's excitement about the payday. In fact, his excitement gets him both into and out of trouble on this fateful payday. Here's Saved by a Sale from Sid Lieberman on the Appleseed. It was payday, Friday, the most wonderful day of the week. And that Friday, I was actually quivering with excitement. It was going to be my first paycheck in America. I had cleaned the butcher block down so clean it was white. My boss, Mr. Resnick, was smiling at me. He told me he was going to go to the slaughterhouse. He was going to put me in charge. I should make the shop stick and span. He tells me the ice locker, I should wash it. The meat grinder strip, wash, the knives and the cleavers, and should hang them from the hook shining. He looked at the two forlorn chickens in the window. He said, anybody comes in, you give them a good price. 
He pulls a watch from his pocket. He says, Sal, I'll be back at four with your check. Make for me a nice job. Check. Check. I thought of my week. In days, nothing. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. An experience, a lifetime full of despair and delight, confusion and hope. Of feathers that didn't come off the chicken without the skin. Of a bite that threw me like a bucking bronco when I wrote it. Of customers calling me boy chick because they didn't know my name. Of a boss who all week yelled at me, Sal, what am I going to do with you? What am I going to do with him? Now after a week, the feathers come off like nothing, the bike like I've been on it all of my life. The customers know my name and my boss is smiling when I go in the ice locker to bring out a shoulder of lamb. I don't come back with a shoulder of veal. Ah, oh, check. I thought of my reward. Eight dollars. What I could buy with it, a bakery full of white rolls. I could put two dollars to it and buy, not custom made, but a new suit. But most of all, I thought of Shirley's candy store. I would sit up on the stool and order the best banana split in the house. Check. I thought he would pay me with a $5 bill and three singles. A check, it's even better. I know where to cash it, where my papa cashes. Where all the men cashed at Morris Finkel's drugstore. A lanceman came from Romania, pressed pants during the day, studied at night, became a pharmacist, became a notary republic. They call him doctor. <laughs> I looked in the butcher window. I said, maybe you too, Sal Kenner. Maybe it'll be your story in America. I cleaned the butcher shop like crazy. The ice locker, I shined it till I could see my face. The meat grinder, I took it apart. I stripped and washed the knives and the cleavers. They were shining down at me like stars when I finished. The only problem, I was finished at three. I had a whole hour to wait for my first paycheck in America. I couldn't sit still. I was walking around. I was going crazy. I said, I'll clean it all again. I, I, I was ruthless. A spot of blood on the wall, I scraped it off. A feather, I put it in my pocket. Clumps of sawdust, I pushed down. By the time four o'clock came, it was spotless. It was like a palace. A king could eat off the floor. I was so happy and so proud. And then I looked up. And there were those two ugly chickens. Those two blue vein chickens. I got so angry. I walked up to one and I punched it. It went to the window. It scratched my nose with its claws. So I punched it again. And then I punched the other one. And then I began punching the chickens. <laughs> I liked the way it felt. I became a boxer. Kid Kenner fighting two opponents at once in Madison Square Garden. I was so excited about boxing the chicken that I didn't even see the crowd gather outside the window till I knocked the chicken off the hook. It landed on the ground and the crowd began to count it out. One, two, three, at ten. Who should show up at Resnick? He came swimming through the crowd. <laughs> what happened here? So what's the accident? Felt like my tongue was swelling. I had a mouthful of tongue. I was playing with the chickens. I was punching the chickens. He looked at me with the eyes you look at someone when you're not sure they're sane. He threw his hands in the air. He shrugged his shoulders. He said, you were playing with the chickens? Two ears? Uh, here's your check. Don't come back tomorrow. I don't think you'll make a good butcher boy. Get a job, maybe a factory somewhere. What was I to do? I took the check. I started out the door. But a woman opened it. A little short woman with a sour face. I thought, oh, I had more trouble. She looked right at me. And she broke into a smile. She said, such a smart butcher boy. 
I was on my way to buy a leg of lamb. I saw you boxing the chickens. I decided on chickens. <laughs> Mr. Resnick, he puffed up his chest like it was his idea. <laughs> For you, I'll make a special price. He grabbed the chickens. He quoted the price. She took it. He wrapped them up and sold them. When she was gone, he called me over. He said, so Sal, you have a second chance. <laughs> Only next week, when you box the chickens, don't break their necks. Some women like to stuff them whole. <laughs> now, good Shabbos. Good Shabbos, I said. I was on my way home and I remembered the check. Ah, it was still there. It was like being paid twice. Sid Lieberman with Saved by a Sale here on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.